So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses. And uh, some of you have been circling this section for a while and asking, who is this strange, mysterious character named Melchizedek? It was mentioned back in chapter 5, and here we are back in chapter 7. So let me read the first 10 verses to you. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. He bowed me to word of prayer. Lord God, we pray now for your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts so that we may receive as we should the deep things of God and the mysteries of Jesus Christ. We pray now for your spirit to help us to attain such a measure of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord, so that all of our hearts and lives would be brought into submission to him. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, there are certainly some mysterious things and people in the Bible. We have the mystery of how animals talk in the Bible, like the serpent in the garden, and of the donkey speaking with Balaam. We have the mystery of Enoch, who walked with God, and of whom the scriptures say he was uh, not, for God took him. There, of course, is a mystery of the prophet Elijah, who was taken by God in the chariots of fire all the way to heaven. And, of course, there is the mystery of the son standing still when the Lord delivered up the Amorites to Joshua and the Israelites. Even Agor in Proverbs 30, 18 acknowledges that in God's creation, that there are three things that are wonderful for him, four which is mysterious to him, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. But there is perhaps no one more mysterious than Melchizedek. The aura of mystery which surrounds the person of Melchizedek is well documented in history in both Jewish tradition and the Christian church. Views vary from some believing that Melchizedek is Shem, the son of Noah, to Job in the land of Uz, to even some superhuman or an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. As early as 215 A.D., from Clement of Alexandria and Cyprian of 258 AD, at least until the time of the Reformation, it was long held that Melchizedek's provision of bread and wine to Abraham 
anticipated the sacrament of the Eucharist by Christ. Roman Catholic teachers have pointed to the incident of Melchizedek as a vindication of their belief and practice of the Eucharistic Mass. Now, the Reformers rejected this analogy, of course, and yet the mystery remained, where later even the great theologian Jonathan Edwards believed this sacramental connection to the Lord's Supper. Now, there's also the view of Melchizedek that is relevant to the audience of Hebrews, which we argue from the beginning in the introduction was the Essenes, these Jewish Christians who came from the community located at Qumran. There is a striking piece of evidence that in one of the scroll fragments discovered in Cave 11 at Qumran, Melchizedek is presented as an end-time deliverer cast in the role of a champion of the Jewish remnant who have not defiled themselves by serving Belial. The belief that Melchizedek was an end-time deliverer was an expectation commonly held in Judaism in the first century, not only to the Essenes, but also to the whole of Judaism. So there may have been a secondary reason why the author of Hebrews brings up Melchizedek in his letter in order to correct some of the erroneous views that were out there, which his audience were tempted to believe. Now, time would not permit me to survey all the other views, and there's quite a lot of them, nor is it the purpose of this sermon, but be that as it may, we can rightly conclude that there is no subject in Scripture that has had more investigators, nor a subject in Scripture that has had more conclusions drawn into this mysterious character called Melchizedek. Now, the greatest mystery of Melchizedek is not even in the fact that various views have been proposed throughout the centuries, but rather it comes from the fact that he is mentioned but three times in the Bible. The first time he appears as, the histor- as a historical person, in this very enigmatic manner of his encounter with Abraham in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. It says there in Genesis 14, 18, and you could turn there if you like, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. That is the whole appearance. Nothing more, nothing else, nothing besides just that. He arrives out of the blue and he gives Abraham bread and wine, which reading in light of what we know now sounds very sacramental. He blesses Abraham and then he vanishes from the stage of history with the same unexplained suddenness as he arrived. The second time he's mentioned is as a type of prophecy. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek has disappeared from history for more than a thousand years. Then the Holy Spirit decided to open the eyes of David and reveal to him that his greater son should be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Then he disappears again for another thousand years. And the next time he appears is right here in the book of Hebrews as a doctrinal typology. There are only two references to Melchizedek in the whole Old Testament before he is the main subject in Hebrews 7. The very mystery which hangs over Melchizedek serves to set forth the mystery of the person of Jesus Christ. 
This was the very purpose of the author from the beginning when Melchizedek was first mentioned back in Hebrews 5.10, where it says, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He wanted to get to the meat of discussing Melchizedek, but he couldn't because these people had become dull of hearing. And so he derailed from his discussion in order to rebuke and to exhort the congregation from their spiritual laziness and spiritual apathy. Now that the congregation is humbled and freshly motivated to strive for the hope that is set before them, he's now ready to resume his teaching on Melchizedek. Now, understanding the temptations of his audience in contemplating on turning from Christ to Judaism and this Levitical system in order to be true sons of Abraham, the author will demonstrate that Christ is superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. He has already demonstrated that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He is superior to the angels. And he is superior to Moses in chapter 3. Now comes Aaron and his priest. And it will be made clear that Christ is superior to the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. His priesthood is a better priesthood. That's going to be the whole argument in the next two chapters in Hebrews. And throughout these sermons, what we're asking is, what is it about Melchizedek that points to the superiority of Jesus's priesthood? Why is it important that Jesus is a priest in Melchizedek's order rather than in the order of Aaron? Now, for the purposes of our passage and in this sermon, I want to draw your attention to verse 4. It's the only command in our text. It says, now observe how great this man was. Now, this Greek word means to gaze or discern through careful observation. We get the word theater from it. Thus, we will, as it is divinely commanded, observe, see, consider, think how great this man was because he is a type of Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so I have five of these observations of how great this man Melchizedek was. Firstly, observe how great this man was in the combination of his offices. Notice the first thing we reread in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, it is said, was both a king and a priest in the same person. Now, this is significant because in the Old Testament, the royal and the priest offices were kept apart. You may be a king or you may be a priest, but you cannot be both at once. Apparently, there was something like a system of checks and balances in Israel, just as we have in America, where the branches of the executive, legislative, and judicial are separated in order to restrict the powers. The reason for the balance of powers is obvious. Mere human beings cannot be trusted with excessive power. Now, we recall when Uzziah, the king of Judah, attempted to offer incense to the Lord by entering into the temple where only the priests were allowed to go, God, you remember, judged him for afflicting him with leprosy. It was said of him, King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26, 21, had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and excluded, even as we read in our scripture reading, from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace 
and govern the people of the land. You see, no king could be a priest and no priest could be a king. Yet we see in Melchizedek both king and priest in one person. And is this not a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ who has the regal scepter in his right hand and a priestly censer in the other? This is what the Messianic Psalm in 110, in which the author of Hebrews will later point to us all about. The first three verses of Psalm 110 is that there will be a great king with utmost authority. And then in verse 4, it states that the Messiah will be a royal priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So here is a prophecy that the Messiah will come as a priestly king, one who will combine two offices. Melchizedek, the priestly king, is a type foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And far greater is Jesus, for he is no mere human being. He is the God-man, as we learned this past Sunday, truly God and truly man, and he alone is the perfect king and priest. And so observe how great this man Jesus was in the combination of his offices as F.B. Meyer writes, how marvelously these blended in the earthly life of Jesus. As priest, he pitied and helped and fed men. As king, he ruled the waves. As priest, he uttered his sublime intercessory prayer. As king, he spoke the I will of his royal prerogative. As priest, he touched the ear of Malchus. As the disowned king to whom even Caesar was preferred, he was hounded to the death. As priest, he pleaded for his murderers and spoke of paradise to the dying thief, while his kingship was attested by the proclamation affixed to his cross. As priest, he breathed peace on his disciples, and as king, he ascended to sit down upon his throne. Observe how great this man, Jesus, is. But secondly, observe how great this man Melchizedek was in what he stood for. Now I know questions are sparking off in your minds and probably has as we read this. Who is this Melchizedek? How was Melchizedek a priest? In Genesis, we find that the first place in the Bible where anyone is declared is to be a priest. So why Melchizedek? Was Melchizedek an official priesthood? How did Abraham know that Melchizedek was a true priest of God? Now these questions are unanswerable and we do not know much about Melchizedek, but we do know what he stood for. And in this too, the author of Hebrews wants us to observe how great this man was in what he stood for. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is not necessarily a personal name. Literally, it means king of righteousness. It means that Melchizedek stood for righteousness. He stood for all that was good and holy and true. He was a reflection of what God wanted in a king since God himself is righteous. Now, this is particularly fascinating when you consider the age and the context in which Melchizedek lived. For if you turn back to Genesis 14, in this lone historical account where Melchizedek appears unexpectedly after Abraham defeats a group of coalition of kings from the east, the story goes that these kings from the east in Canaan attacked a confederation of Five kings from Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. The latter kings, the kings from Sodom and Gomorrah, were defeated and their cities were plundered. And in the process, Lot, Abraham's nephew, was abducted. And Abraham rounded his best men for a rescue mission 
And he staged a nighttime attack, putting the enemies to flight and recovering their stolen goods along with his nephew, Lot. And upon his return home, Abraham was met by the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. Now I bring up this context of how Melchizedek appears in the narrative of Genesis 14 to point out how remarkable it is that Melchizedek lived with Sodom on one side and the Canaanites on the other. Now we think of the Canaanites with their corrupt and despicable worship. We think of their evil practices of promiscuity and perversion. And we know what Sodom and Gomorrah are like. These kings represent kings of unrighteousness. And yet in the midst, God raises up a godly witness for himself, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Now, John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis, he writes, it was doubtless no common thing that in a country abounding in the corruptions of so many superstitions, a man was found who preserved the pure worship of God. For on one side, he was close to Sodom and Gomorrah, and on the other to the Canaanites, so that he was on every side encompassed by ungodly men. It was therefore a memorable fact that there was still a king who was not only retained true religion, but also performed himself the office of a priest. And then he says, it was doubtless necessary that in him was a type of the Son of God, all things excellent should be found. Was not Melchizedek great in what he stood for? Surrounded by such evil, comes forth a shining light in an upright and righteous life. Is this not the way that the apostle John talks about Jesus, who in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness? Is this not what makes Jesus Christ so great, whose name is the Lord, our righteousness? Now, you know, none of the secular kings of Melchizedek's day would have thought of him as great. I find it very interesting that when the kings of the east and the kings of Sodom formed their alliances, they didn't include Melchizedek. He was standing alone. And in the eyes of these unrighteous kings, Melchizedek was not great. But oh, the author tells us, observe how great this man was, for he stood for righteousness. And while Melchizedek was a type of Christ, who is a priest forever, we too need to recognize that Melchizedek is a type of those who are Christ. You see, we too are priests. By our union with Christ, Peter calls us holy and a royal priesthood. We too need to shine as lights in the world to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. The Sodoms and the Canaanites of the world will never think of us as great. They value none of that which God deems as great. But you and I are to be great for God and for righteousness. What a reminder this is for us in our workplaces, in the secular world that we live in, that we are to be known for righteousness even if we have to stand alone. But thirdly, let us, let us observe how great this man was and what his names represent. Now, I want you to turn back to Hebrews and look at verse 2. The author of Hebrews highlights that Melchizedek was, first of all, 
by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. The order is significant. There is a reason why king of righteousness is first, and then also king of peace. Because righteousness must always come before peace. Without righteousness, there can be no such thing as peace. Never has the Lord set aside righteousness to grant peace. But ever peace is accomplished on the basis of righteousness. You know, the trouble with so many people today is that they want peace without righteousness. In other words, they want their sin, but they don't want to be troubled by their consequences. That is why the world does not know peace. Everywhere you look in our society today, you will not find peace. It's not that they're not trying to find peace. They're trying. They're looking. They look to psychiatrists. They look to governments. They look to health and well-being clinics. They look for peace in escaping, perhaps on an island or in a bottle. The world says peace is within oneself when you forgive yourselves. But none of these things is where peace is found. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.17, in the path of peace, they have not found. And that is because sin, the root problem, has not been dealt with. As Spurgeon said, salvation must first of all provide for righteousness or peace will never lodge within its chambers. This is why God has always dealt with men. God is always first king of righteousness and then king of peace. Don't ever imagine that God would lay aside his righteousness for saving a sinner. He never winks at sin or he lets sin go unpunished. He is always glorious and holy. The judge of the earth must do right. So you remember in the Garden of Eden, when the great creator entered and visited Adam and Eve, when they rebelled and they hid themselves among the trees and called for them, they stood trembling before God in the nakedness of their conscious guilt. They knew him to be a king of righteousness. They hid from God because their guilt could not stand in the presence of pure righteousness. And at that moment, he was not a king of peace to them, but a king of righteousness. But then the Lord promises a deliverer, a savior who would crush the serpent's head. And the Lord sacrifices an innocent life in the Garden of Eden and clothes their nakedness and hides the shame. That is always the pattern of our Lord in saving. First, as the God of righteousness, he curses and condemns sin and judgment upon wrong. Then after that, God offers mercy, salvation, and peace. You see, until sin is dethroned in our hearts, until sin is banished and dealt with, we will not experience the divine fruit of peace. And is not Jesus Christ preeminently the king of righteousness and the king of peace? And in that order, Jesus is called Jesus the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. He is the Lamb of God, unblemished and spotless. And being the righteous one, Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners. The wrath of God fell upon him. God dealt with our sins in the cross of Christ. For Christ, says Peter, also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us in peace to God. Never once was sin winked at swept under a rug. It was dealt fully by Jesus at the price of his blood. Therefore, Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, having justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the order. Righteousness before peace. So if you're here and you have a guilty soul and you are troubled by a conscience that accuses you, then realize that no experience of peace comes but at the cost of Jesus' shed blood. He, the righteous one, satisfies the righteousness of God as our substitute so that all who believe in him today might have peace with God. Come to faith to this king of Salem. But I want you to fourthly observe how great this man was in the duration of his priesthood. Now remember the greater context in which the author of Hebrews begins chapter 7. He's seeking to demonstrate that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to the old Aaronic priesthood. And in the old Aaronic priesthood, a Jew could not be a priest unless he could trace his family descent all the way to Aaron. And when you read parts of Chronicles and parts of the Pentateuch, you see all of these priestly genealogies listed. Why is that? Because it was absolutely essential in order to keep the purity of the priestly line to demonstrate that you were descended from Aaron. If you were going to be a Levitical priest, that was the qualification. Another thing we see is that the office of priesthood passes on to another. After death, an individual is no longer a high priest. The office passes on to a son. But here we read of Melchizedek in Hebrews 7.3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, what does this mean right here? Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning days or end of life? Does this mean that he literally was without a beginning? That he was eternal as God is eternal? Does it mean literally that he had no father or mother? That he had no end of days? That he is still living? You see, so mysterious is Melchizedek that many have suggested that he was some superhuman or a pre-incarnate Lord. They are inclined to believe that he was not a king of some city in Canaan, but he was a manifestation of the Son of God. But this goes beyond what the text is saying. The author of Hebrews states that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Look at verse 3 again. Made like the Son of God. It does not say he is the Son of God. I think that the author is, by telling us without genealogy and piling on words, is building an argument from the strange silence of Genesis. If you look at the record in Genesis, nothing is said of Melchizedek's genealogy. The scriptures are silent concerning this. Now, this is truly remarkable when you think about it, for what is it that we repeatedly see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis? That's right. Lots of genealogies, right? There's one in chapter 5, the book of generations of Adam. Then in chapter 10, there's the generations of sons of Noah. Then in chapter 11, the generations of Shem and Terah, Abraham's father. You would think then that as a person as significant as Melchizedek, known as the king of Salem, priest of the Most High, would have a genealogy of where he came from and who came after him, but his family lineage that never mentioned. Nor does Genesis say anything about the length of his life or his death. The author is saying that the Holy Spirit deliberately omitted these facts from the book that so heavily emphasizes genealogies 
in order to make Melchizedek a type of Jesus Christ. The point is that the silence of genealogy and family bonds marks Melchizedek as a figure and points to Christ as the reality. That's why he says Melchizedek was made like the son of God rather than Jesus was made like Melchizedek. It is not that Melchizedek never had parents or family, nor does it mean that he never died. But rather, you see, in what Genesis omits, he remains a priest continually. And since Genesis is silent of Melchizedek's death, he disappears. And therefore, it gives the impression that his priesthood was continuous. He had no predecessor in his priesthood, and he had no successor. Again, that serves as a type of the priesthood that Jesus has, not from the priestly tribe of Levi, but of an entirely different order, namely Melchizedek of Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Observe then how great this man was. And see the greater one, our eternal priest, one who is able to save not merely for today and tomorrow, but for the day after and so on forever. And observe how great the scriptures are. As one old commentator said, again, let us worship as we contemplate the perfection of scripture, just as perfect in what it omits as in what relates. We come to the fifth observation, observe how great this man Melchizedek was in the superiority of his priesthood. This is the plain argument beginning in verse 4. The purpose is to argue that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to that of Aaron. His argument rests on two observations that point Melchizedek being greater than Abraham. First, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And so just think of this. Abraham was greatly blessed. Indeed, no other man received the promise that he would be a blessing and where all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. But when Abraham met Melchizedek, instinctively the great patriarch knelt down before the king of Salem, offering the tithes of all the spoils to Melchizedek. And there Melchizedek, even before the famous ironic blessing of number six to the Israelites, gave a priestly benediction to Abraham. And according to Hebrews 7, 6, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from then collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Then he says, without, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. You see, great as Abraham was, he was face to face with one who was his superior. But second observation, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe, a literally a tenth of all that he captured from the foreign kings. Now, drawing from this, let's read from verse 5 and see how the author makes plain that Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Look at verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, pay tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Note how, notice how he is setting this up. 
from verses 5 and 6 to show how great Melchizedek was. He says that the Levites collected tithes from their brethren who were descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek collected tithes from Abraham, and he was not related to Melchizedek. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, even though Melchizedek was not part of his genealogy. Therefore, Melchizedek is more distinguished than the Levites. But it's the final argument from the author that makes us scratch our heads. It says in verse 9 and 10 that even the Levites, who clearly were not born yet, paid tithes to Melchizedek. How can that be, we ask? How can that be that the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek when there were no Levites around when Melchizedek was given tithes from Abraham? Well, the answer the author of Hebrews provides is the principle of covenant solidarity. You see, Abraham was the representative of the faithful. He was the federal head of the Hebrew people. Paul makes the same kind of argument in Romans 5.12, where he argues on the basis of the solidarity of the human race, that when Adam sinned, the entire human race sinned, and the death of Adam was the death of all. And so here the author says, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That is, that when Abraham bowed in the presence of Melchizedek and paid tithes to him, Judah bowed, Levi bowed, Aaron bowed, and all the he, he, priesthood bowed, and all the family of the children of God bowed and paid tithes unto Melchizedek. Now, what is the significance of all of this? Is it not this, that if Melchizedek, who was a sign and shadow and is greater than Abraham and all of the Levitical priests, how much more Christ, who is the substance and the reality to which the shadow points to, is it not this, to consider how great this man Melchizedek was and asking if Melchizedek is so great, and so majestic and so sublime, how much more is the man to whom Melchizedek represents? Who can match this strange, mysterious priest and king sent by the Most High God to bless the Father of the faithful? Who can equal his un- uniqueness? And at least from the silence of Scripture, how he is without father and mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, for he was made like the Son of God. For if Melchizedek is a mysterious character, how much greater? is the mysterious person of Jesus Christ, of whom the apostle writes, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Observe how great this man was. I want to leave you with a few words of application from our text. And there are three of these I'd like to share. Number one, Consider how great the Lord Jesus Christ is as your highest activity on this earth. Now, as I mentioned before, there is but one command in the text. That is to observe, think, consider how great this man was. And in this command, the author intends for us to consider the higher application of Melchizedek and to think and to consider much of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not some suggestion, not some piece of device. It is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 
that commands us to consider how great Jesus Christ not was, but who is and who is to come. It is to our great benefit to do so. And it is to our great detriment that we lack in considering Christ. You know, many things might occupy our attention. Much knowledge invades our minds. But there is no subject that ought to absorb our minds more than the knowledge of Christ and him crucified. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, after knowing Christ for many, many years, he expressed his desire to know Christ more and to know him more fully. He felt that he had not arrived yet. And in comparison to everything he possessed, he counted all things to be in loss of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Oh, beloved, may each of us have this same attitude. That after years of being a student of the word of God and after years of considering Christ, we would say, I have yet much to learn. I have yet much to know. The great Puritan, John Owen, who spent much of his writing on the topic of knowing Christ, commented that beholding the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of in this world or, or that which is to come. And so consider how great this man is. This is a subject worthy of your best attention, your greatest concentration. Give your all to it. Turn it over and over in your minds. And after looking at Christ, keep looking unto Christ. In the apostles' line of thinking, count every minute and every second that is wasted where you are not learning more about Christ. We cannot live properly. If we do not know Christ rightly, it is only by considering Jesus and learning and knowing him that you and I can begin to live and love him more and more. But secondly, draw often near to Christ for the blessings that he gives. Friends, if Melchizedek had the power to stand as God's representative to bless Abraham, how much more is the Son of God ready and able to bless those who draw near to God through him? Jesus is full of blessing, and he is ready to dispense his blessings to us. He is fully authorized to bestow upon us every spiritual blessings on us by virtue of his uh, purchase of his blood. What then is it that we need in this life? What do you need from God? Eternal life? This life is in his son, 1 John 5, 11. Forgiveness of sins? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, Ephesians 1, 7. Inner peace? For he himself is our peace, Ephesians 2, 14. Do you need hope? Christ in you is the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. Nourishment of our souls? Christ is the bread of life. Joy in the midst of trials? Grace to endure? Victory over sin? healing from past wounds. Yes, all of these blessings are found in Christ, our perfect high priest, who is ready and able to dispense all of God's blessings to us. But third and finally, consecrate yourselves to Christ. Not merely the tenth of your spoils, but all that you possess. And here's the last application. In our passage, it is said of Abraham that he gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Choicest spoils really is one word in the Greek compound of two nouns. The first word signifying the top or the uppermost part of a thing. The second word signifying a heap or a field. 
and put together, the word signifies the top, the uppermost parts of a heap. And that is well known commonly to be taking the best, taking the best. And here Abraham is said to have taken the best of his spoils and offered them to God after the blessing he received from Melchizedek. Abraham recognized the greatness of Melchizedek and gave God the best. Yet Jesus is greater still, isn't he? Consider how great Jesus is and consider that he is worthy not just of a tithe, but all that we are and have. Christ is worthy of not only the best, but of all that we have, for all we have comes from him. May this application be both a rebuke to our hearts and an encouragement, a rebuke in revealing the deceitfulness of our hearts and how often we give lip lip service to God that we surrender all to God. And yet, how often we give God our worst. It is reflected not only in the money we offer to God in tithes and offerings, but how we spend our time and what we dedicate ourselves to what we are absorbed in with our minds and attention. This is a rebuke to our hearts, yet it is an encouragement for you and I, for you and I to give our whole selves and dedicate our whole lives to show the world how great this God-man Jesus is. And so consider how great Jesus is and come away with feeling how greatly you are indebted to him and consider what great things you ought to do for Christ. And then realize to yourselves that even the best that you have to offer him is nothing compared to the greatness of what Christ deserves. So consider then how great Jesus is and let us give God our best, our souls, the best of our hearts, the best of our strength, the best of our time. Let us dedicate ourselves to him and all that we are for Christ indeed is great. And he is worthy of it all. Let's pray together. Lord, there is an excellence of, in knowing you. There's an excellence in knowing you far above all knowledge in this world. All things in this world are temporary, but only you are forever. All things in this world are vanities, but only you are glorious and satisfying. Turn our hearts then to consider your greatness, to making knowing Christ our greatest pursuit in life. And as we consider the greatness of you, may we give our best, the choices of our spoils, the complete devotion of our hearts. This we pray in the name of Christ, who is our righteousness and peace. Amen.